You know, um, I came to Jesus at a time, um, really young in my life, but where I really opened my heart and, and became vulnerable and said, come into my life and, and, and begin to direct my life. It was around a verse of scripture that I envisioned as I talked to the Father in heaven, as I was just in conversation with him, I, I kind of saw, Father, you can see all that I could be. And I know in my own life and my own strength, I can't do that. But if I just would trust in you, would you help me become that? Would you be that kind of father and dad in my life? And, um, you know, his response was yes. A thousand million times yes, written all over his word. That's what I want to do. What we want to look at this, uh, this morning is, is that same kind of idea. Um, one of the things we're looking at is living with spiritual insight. And this passage of scripture is about a passage that really shows a father's heart, an earthly father's heart, which really demonstrates in a much deeper way the heart of the father and his love for us. It, 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 this whole idea of spiritual insight begins really back in chapter 16 when Jesus is confronted with the religious authorities and he realizes they have chosen to be blind and don't want to see. And so he departs and leaves. It says it was made a break with those who refused to see. And you would think the church of his day who had been prepared would be the ones to see, but they chose not to see. And he left and he went with his followers who were really a bunch of you know, ragtag people who weren't really the ones that were the best of the best. They were really the ones that were just kind of desperate for God and reflected the crowd that was coming around him. And he helped them see. And as they began to see, one of the first key insights happens when Peter at one point answers Jesus' question, who says, who am I? Which is the, the key spiritual insight if you want to know the Father. And Peter says, you're the Christ, the living, the Son of God. And from this great insight, this great confession, he moves to what I call the great blunder. Because Jesus is going, great, you, you didn't even get this by your father, but you get it, you said it. And he moves from there and he says, now let me tell you who I am. Let's move to what I'm going to do, why I'm even here. And he begins to share with them that I'm going to have to die. I'm going to suffer humiliation at the hands of these religious authorities. And Peter goes, no way, that will never happen. I'll, I myself will die for you. And, and Jesus says, you still, you don't get it. The way of the Father, who I am, gets translated in, in the heart of the Father and how he acts and how I have come. And that is through self-sacrifice that I have called to love. I didn't come here to demonstrate a power to manipulate, to show my glory, to force people. He, he doesn't do that in our world. He won't do it in your life. He will not force you into some kind of relationship with him. He will express his love, even to the point of a cross. And he makes that known to him. And yet they still need to see a little bit more clearly. They don't not just, just see that he is the Messiah who has come by the way of, of self-revealing, self-sacrificial love. But they needed to be dialed up just a little bit more. So he takes them up on a mountain. They're up on a mountain. And in this mountain experience, they see Jesus in his full glory. He's not Jesus, just some man. His, his kind of sin, his flesh is kind of pulled away. And they see the brightness, this transfiguration, this metamorphosis kind of experience. They see who Jesus truly is. He's God with all power. His presence before them. And they fall in trembling worship. And after they get up from that experience, now they've seen fully, they 
basically what you have is this, this sense they come down from the mountain. They come down from seeing this vision of who God is and in it who God wants them to be. Almost in a sense they come down the mountain and we come into the, the daily reality of life is what these next verses are about. And as we read these for a moment, you're going to see one of the first key spiritual insights you need to have when you understand who Jesus is and why he has come and what he has done, and you begin to live in that relationship with him. It is a relationship that is, that is about faith, and we're going to see that in a moment. And then it goes on, and it talks about the temple tax, the citizenship, and it goes on to um, not creating obstacles and humility, and, and we'll do those things later in the fall, but that's to come. It tells you from who he is and insight to now insight how to live, and that's kind of what we're moving into. So in verse 14... They come down from the mountaintop experience. You had those kind of things, or you kind of go, wow, this is the greatest I've been, you know, I just, oh, this is great. And all of a sudden you move into the reality of the valley of despair kind of thing. The everyday life. And they come down, it says in verse 14, when they came down, there was a crowd waiting. A man approached Jesus, knelt before him, Lord, have mercy on my son. He said he has seizures and he is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Now, the other gospel writers, when there's something really important, they usually repeat the story. I told you that last week. That's why you have the transfiguration in all three of them. You also have this story in all three of them. Mark specifically says this kind comes out by prayer, because Jesus adds that line to help have understanding. Well, Matthew doesn't include it because Matthew just really wants them to grab hold of the fact that faith is what's necessary for what's impossible. But I think this line, if you see, scribes later had put this in, but this kind does not come out except by prayer. And they add and fasting, verse 21. Some of you see that in your footnotes. And when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised life. And the disciples were filled with grief. They still, even at that point, after all that, still had trouble understanding this, this truth about why Jesus had fully come. Well, the first thing I want you to note here is, is that we are called to be engaged with those around us, and especially dads today with our children. Uh, it's all about, I talk about the Father's heart. As you look at this first few verses, it's about the Father's intent. The father brings this child because he knows what this child should be and could be and wants for his child and will do anything for his child. So if you look at these first few verses, it says in verse 14, when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son. And the word have mercy, the word mercy here is the idea. Would you demonstrably display compassion? Do something, please. I'm so desperate. And then he went on to share with him he has seizures. And in the word, and it's really interesting, in the 2010 revision, in the sense that they keep always seeking to understand how to make clear our language and the language, you know, the Bible, so we're speaking the same things. Before that, it was the word epileptic. They changed it to seizures because really that's what that word means. In the Greek, it means moonstruck. 
It's a concept that people would have when someone would have kind of erratic behavior you couldn't explain that might, in this case, throw that person on the floor, which would, be kind of, which would probably be titled an epileptic attack. It's what our modern word became lunatic, which was really the idea of lunar, which was the idea that the, you know, the moon and the stars kind of have a way of moving the tides, and they would see this force going on, and they would have these invisible forces that would move that. They would see that somehow operating in this child, and they would come up with a designation for a illness that was really broad because they really couldn't tell you exactly what it is, which when you talk to doctors, they'll tell you often there are many what I call collection names. MS is one of those. It's a, it's a collection of, of, of diseases that they say, and they describe it by the symptoms because there aren't those kind of things they can say are the roots. And so what they have here is these symptoms of this child who has, who it says, has been trying to a child up to these age that he is now displaying these seizures. And this dad comes to him and says this, this destructive, whatever it is going on in him, is, is ruining his life. It's not what God, I believe, intended for my son. And it's killing me. Jesus, as he kneels, not in worship as much as it just is in, in desperation, would you do something for my boy? And you see a father who can't stand to see his only son, Mark tells us, in pain. This whole gospel, when you read the whole gospel, in fact, you read the New Testament, you read the whole Old Testament, is all about a father who is a creative being who creates children whom he loves. And he loves them so much that he wants to be in relationship with them. And it's interesting as you read this passage of Scripture, just prior to this, there is in this transfiguration moment when the cloud descends, there is a voice that comes from heaven, which is the Father, and he, he designates, you know it's the voice of God, the Father, because he says, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I've sent my Son, my only unique Son in this sense, because what I have desired for you, every person here, is that you will walk into the fullness of the life that God has called you. The fullness of the life that displays the very character of God. That allows you to live in love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. That begins to move into your experience so that your experience in your heart can begin to make a difference in the experience around you. And so you have this picture of Father in heaven who loves us so much that he would, through his own son, seek to come to help restore us to be who God intended us to be. And specifically you here have the Father so engaged in his child that he will do anything for that little one. And I, I was just reading through this, and at that point I, I was understanding, you know, we're Father's Day, and I just want to ask you, if, if the whole here, idea here is the father's intent and the fact that he, you see this father engaged in his, in, his, in his son's life, what about you dads? Let's get really practical for a second. You have opportunities to get to know your kids, to get into their hearts, to be able to see this dad had seen this thing. We don't know if it started as a little thing and he just didn't notice it or, or he was concerned or anything. But now we know it's a big thing. You know, what's really interesting is sometimes we can stop some of the big things earlier on. Sometimes they just happen and sometimes the very crisis brings us to insight and we change the way we live and we become fathers that are different because of what we see happening in our son's life or what's happened to us as a result of something that's happened in our kid's life. And so I just say, kind of as a way of, of calling you to understand what's your engagement 
with your kids. What kind of time do you spend? This summer is a great opportunity. It's, it's going to fly by, right? I had a, a dad come up to me last week who was just smiling ears, you know, from ear to ear, just so thrilled with his daughter standing next to me. He goes, you got to see this. And so he shows me this picture. With his daughter Maggie, he had taken her the week or so before fishing up in northern Canada. I actually has fished at this lake and um, actually caught a fish about that large. They're really hard to catch. Mine was pretty easy to catch because it was half alive just floating on the top of the water. Seriously, half. And so I actually grabbed it and took a picture with it. But um, I really haven't caught anything like that pulling it out of the water. But he said, you know, Kevin, I have caught fish like that, and it is a thrill every time you do it. He said, nothing compares to the thrill of watching my daughter Maggie pull that out of the water. And I, I just say, dads, life goes way too fast. I'm a dad who has kids, they're not kids, young adults, who are in their 20s. And I can't believe how fast it went. And I just call on some of you, you younger dads, now is an opportunity to engage with your kids, to get to know their heart, to, to be able to live and experience with Plan something maybe this summer that's unique with one. And get away. Do that. I, I was sharing in the first service of a grandpa I know who um, who spends time with each of his grandchildren. They take uh, he and his wife take them on, on on trips. Their grandchildren and, and and actually text messages to his grandkids. I also have another friend who is my age who I texted him and he called me back and said, "I'm not doing this texting thing. Almost this rebellious kind of thing." And I'm thinking to myself, if that's how kids respond and you're going to connect to them. Man, learn it. I encourage you to think of the ways you can connect and engage with your kids. There's another thing that it just shows about engagement. If you continue on in this, it's, it's all about mentors. It's, it's this whole idea of the father's intent. And the father's intent is that you live in such a way that you model this life that you want to pass on. So you get to verse 16, and it's interesting. The passage tells us something about a mentor in the role and relationship of a rabbi to his followers. The people had expectations. Look at this. I brought him to your disciples. Here were the nine disciples. Jesus is up on the mount with the three. They see Jesus' disciples. They have seen Jesus' disciples have gone out at another time where they were given power and authority and they healed and they cast out spirits and they did those kind of things. So this guy comes fully expecting that the mentor has mentored them to mo- and modeled such a life that they will not just know what he knows, but he will, they will actually do what he does. And they come to him and he says they could not heal him. And the word really is healing. It's the word we get therapy today. They truly expected that. The word disciple, we often translate learner, and I think it's far less than, than what the word of God really means and intends for it to be. It's the idea of learning, not just intellectually, not just information transmission. It is, that's a Western concept. The Eastern concept of, of one who's a learner was one who learned fully, wholly, the heart, desire, and everything about him. I love how this one New Testament scholar says it. A disciple is someone who follows a revered leader and tries to become an exact impersonation of the one who is followed. You remember little kids when, you're, when they were little and you would see them and they'd try and dress up in their clothes and they'd put your shoes on and you would go, oh my God, they're going to be just like me, Right? That's, that's kind of the idea. It's, it's, these, it's like these little kids going, Daddy, I want to look, I, can I do the things Daddy's doing? And he gets older. 
And so you get this, this picture here where he goes on, and I like what this person says, to be a disciple is to attempt to live, think, believe, respond, and desire as the role model does. A disciple is not a mimicking puppet, but a student who deeply studies the loves, hates, desires, and intents of the one he admires and attempts to have those things become his own. It is out of these that he will interact with the world around him. It is these things that will become his loves, hates, desires, and intents. And he will be unified with his master in both spirit and mind. And he will then be an extension of his master at all times, in all places he goes. That's what they're expecting. What I think is interesting here is the ideal is really more of a master and apprentice. And, and you, it makes sense when you look at verse 16. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. It makes sense also of their conversation later in verse 19, when it says the disciples came to Jesus in private and said, well, well why couldn't we do it? It makes sense of their conversation in verse 17, when they make this, Jesus makes a statement and he says, you unbelieving, perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Let's deal with this. Bring the boy to me. You have to ask who is Jesus directing his frustration to. It's an interesting thing. He says, you perverse, unbelieving generation. He speaks of generation. The reason I believe he does that is because he's not just signaling out the disciples. He's actually saying this whole people of God, all the way from the church of his day and all the followers of Israel who had been prepared from the Old Testament all the way to this point were to be prepared so that when, when God's son would show up, they would all want to follow the king who is before them and, and they would want to be apprentices to this God who has become They're God in flesh. But it's more than that. It's much more pointed than that. His frustration, I think, is the frustration every mentor, every father feels, right? How many times did I tell you that you need to put your shoes over here, right? How many times do I have to tell you that carrying red cans of pop on the white carpeting is not a good idea? I mean, it's that kind of idea, but I'm minimizing it so much. It's Jesus going, guys, perverse here means distorted. It's it's the idea that you've seen enough evidence right now. Now that you've seen the evidence, you need to begin to act on the very evidence. You need to begin to, in faith, which we're going to talk about in a moment, step into this. And so he's just going, Father in heaven, whoa, are you sure when I was on the mountain you said these are the twelve? You know what I love about this is, is this, this truth that that's, that's who you and I are. So we have to be gracious with others, but the reality is there is this sense, I think at times God is just up there going, oh, I just want you to move into the fullness of what I have. In fact, I want you to do it because when you move into that and you have that fullness, that fullness in you begins to overflow. It actually spills out and touches other people. And so the father looks here and he goes, here's the father's intent, engage. And, the, and, the, and you look at the next thing he says, here's the father's intent. He sends a model that, that shows us the way in Jesus and says, would you do the same? Start to follow him. So that um, I want to just say here, dads, there's kind of a therefore statement here. There's one that's general. Therefore, followers of Jesus. We are to attempt to live, think, believe, respond and desire what Jesus desires and to do what he does to live like jesus lives that's that's really our goal in this life 
It's to grow up into maturity. It's to have relational health. It's to live in that way with God and with one another. But then there's a thing for dads. I just want to say, you're mentors. You, you have been called to pass on a way of life. And you, you are going to pass on a way of life whether you want to or not. The reality is your, your kids will see how you interact with your wife and what's going on there. And more than likely, as much as you don't like to think this, as much as I don't like to think it, your kids begin to do the same thing in their relationship when they get married. The way you interact with them as kids sets a pattern of how they will probably interact. Not always. God steps in. The way that you approach your work, the way that you approach your relationship with God. I mean, if it's just some kind of Sunday thing or is it something that's really from your heart? There's a desire, deepening longing that says, I want to know you in a very intimate way, God. I want to be mentored by you. And I take that seriously so that I might mentor my children. The third thing I want you to note here is verse 18. If we know that his father's intent is engagement with our kids and with us as kids and that his... Um, the way he does it is by mentoring and modeling a way of life that um, encapsulizes his heart. And then you see this third thing is we're in a battle. Um, what's interesting is they have this explanation of what the, the illness is up in that first verses 14 and 15. But you get down to verse 18 and what you have here is Jesus makes it really clear what it is, what you're contending with in this situation. He says, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Demonic spirits, unclean spirits, evil spirits exist. And they didn't just leave when Jesus ascended heaven. They weren't just a part of the early church. They're not nearly just a part of some way out there, kind of third world, kind of voodooistic kind of thing. They actually exist. For us to understand the, the world that Jesus lived in and that he modeled before us, he modeled before us a, a reality that has the world. And First John talks about this, the world which draws us into its system. He modeled before us the fact that there is a flesh that has been fallen due to, due to sin, that, ha, and that we ourselves um, give ourselves to things which we know aren't right. And there's a third reality, and that's the reality of, a, of an evil demonic world headed by a, a person called Satan. And these things operate together. It's really hard to, to, to imagine that. It calls for great discernment and understanding because we want to live in such black and white worlds. We get really afraid of that. The Western world in particular tries to avoid this middle realm, this realm of the spirit. And we just think of heaven out there and we think about earth here. And we are very much more scientific, rationalistic. And so we seek to do everything we can to give a naturalistic explanation. In some ways, our world is moving from that. This generation is open to the things of the spirit, seeking to understand that. And in that process, they're beginning to understand the fact that there is a realm that operates even in our lives. There is the fact that there are unhealed wounds, there are unmet needs, there are unresolved conflicts. These kind of things can give grounds for influence. So the sad thing about the way it's interpreted so often um, by people and by the NIV even is the word demon possessed is not the Greek word. The word is dimitsonai, which means to be demonized, which means there can be influence, which means that this realm can operate when we give ground for that to happen. And so in this case, we don't fully understand it. The word of God never says that every illness is demonic. The word of God in Luke says there are times when there's just illness that has physical roots and causes that are sometimes generational, but there are also illnesses that are very much much demonic have some kind of spiritual influence in this case that's what's going on 
And so Jesus recognizes he's in a war and he deals with it at this level. And he takes that war and it says Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out. And we're in a battle. We're in a battle that is more than just the world, more than flesh and blood. There's a there is a spiritual realm. And I think as we move into this in the in the next year or year to come, that's one of the areas that we're going to grow and understand as a church. There are people who need freedom. Paul says it this way in Ephesians, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms or translate the realm of the spirit. And then the fourth thing is to note that we're called to do the impossible. That's where faith steps in. This is an interesting verse right here because it all is kind of leading to this. You have this father's intent who who models in this way, who now you see the battle. And in the battle, you see there is no battle that is too great for God. There is no obstacle that God can't remove. There's no mountain that he can't take and level so that he can do the things he wants to do. And what he's calling fathers to understand, I think what he's calling you as a father, as a dad, is to understand that you have the ability in your life with your kids As they grow, you have the opportunity to pray, to be involved, to be engaged in ways that you can actually come in and at times step in and and, in with them in understanding faith, you can move mountains. You go, well, what does that mean? Well, it's very clear. He says here, because you have so little faith, truly, I tell you, and whenever Jesus says truly, he is it's a foundational principle of life that we're to live by. He doesn't say truly because he's been kind of telling half-truths before, and now he's saying, I'm going to tell you the truth now. He's saying truly because this is something so true that you should take special note of it and, and basically build your life on this concept of truth. And here's the concept. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And verse 21, which is an addition that I think is an important one here because it gives you the understanding. But this kind is not God except by prayer and fasting. We're going to explain this. It requires faith. And here's a really wonderful thing. Guess what? As you read this text, it doesn't require great faith. There are some of you who have come to faith in Christ in the last year. I've prayed with a few of you. And as you've come to faith in Christ, you may be going, boy, I've got to have, gotta be like 20 years down the road to be able to do this. No. It's not your size of faith. It's who you believe in. It's who, the size of the one you trust in. And so that's why Jesus says this right here. He says, truly, I tell you, you just need faith as small as a mustard seed. And, and, and that mustard seed is an interesting illustration because it was the smallest of seeds, but it's given in different contexts, that that seed grows to be one of the largest of plants. Your faith has the ability, as you walk with him, to grow into a great size. Not so much in your faith, but again, in what God can do. So it's really about quality of faith. When he says little faith here, he's not saying size. He's talking about quality. It's almost more the word poor or weak faith. And the footnote, I think, points out how you enrich your faith by prayer and fasting. Moving mountains. This whole idea of moving mountains is an expression. It's really a proverbial kind of expression you find in the Old Testament. If you look at Isaiah 40, Isaiah 49, and Isaiah 54, you'll see in there where it talks about turning mountains into level paths. It's the idea that where there are obstacles in the way of what God wants to do in you and through your life, when he has put promises into your heart, those obstacles by faith will be removed. And so Jesus' followers are expected through faith to move what seems to be unmovable. And the key to this is this. It's prayer and fasting. And you might go, I mean, I've got to start praying and fasting. I've got to do that. Here's what prayer and fasting means. It's, explain, it's added to explain how to make your faith rich, what makes your faith rich. 
The nine disciples are standing there. Can you imagine this guy comes to them? They say, you know, would you heal them? They try a couple times to heal and, and they can't do it. And what, what you what you realize when Jesus comes down the hill because they can't do it. It's not because they have it's little faith. It's their poor faith. They're really in this place where they're they're not doing it out of a rich context of the intimacy of God. They're trying to do it almost in a magical way. Somehow they have a bestowed power. Well, God, you know, Jesus said this. Faith is something that is demonstrated when the power of it comes is because it comes out of a rich relationship and they were treating the idea of following jesus and doing the works of jesus as if it was some kind of magic thing prayer and fasting the reason jesus says this is to make it clear this is a power out of intimacy we need the presence of god to do the things of god so here's jesus he comes down he goes guys you see me i get away i spend time in the presence of my father i make sure that i live in the presence of my father i live in such a way that as i walk daily i seek to be filled by the presence of god i seek his face i i I want so much that this god be so involved in my character and my life that when when these kinds of things come up my life because my life has been prayer and fasting meaning this intimacy of God is in a place that it can exact the power of God in that place. And it's, it's, it reminds me of Ephesians. When in Ephesians 5, um, Paul is saying to them, don't be drunk on wine. And you think about it, the whole idea of drinking wine is you get to a point where you're inebriated, these spirits take over and it controls your behavior and you do things that you really didn't plan on doing, right? And you know what he says in the next line? Don't be drunk on wine, which leads to this kind of debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. The idea of being filled with the Spirit isn't just one time it happens. It's this constant, continual living in the presence of God. As you live in the presence of God, this Spirit, the Spirit, begins to take over, and you begin to find that God works through you to do the kind of things, to act in the kind of way that you could never in yourself do. That's what faith is. Faith is not just something that you put in someone. It's a relationship. It's about a relationship. It's a trust where you're walking constantly in the presence of knowing this God. So that you can do that which seems impossible. And even a relationship with your kids. And then the last thing I think is interesting is he says not only this, but he says, um, note this, guys, verse 22 and 23. I'm going to gather you together again. Undergirding all that he says is the way that you do this. The way that God saves is not through manipulation, control, and through your force, but it's always in this self-revealing, self-sacrificing love. It's that kind of love that builds intimacy. You have that kind of presence and relationship with your father. You can't control, you can't manipulate. He will not control and manipulate you. As you reveal your heart, you acknowledge your need of him. As you acknowledge the things in your life before him, as that self-revealing to God comes, and as you sacrificially give yourself to him, this God has already done that by sending his son, revealing his whole heart through his son. As he reveals his heart through his son, you see the sacrificial love of the father. There's an intimacy that grows, and that same kind of intimacy is to show up with your kids in the way that you live. Now, I will say when kids are little, you need to be more directive, right? And then there comes a point when they get a little bit older that you move from being um, the person who is the commander. You move to the person who is more, in this sense, the coach. And eventually you find out your job is passive consultant, right? 
Because the kind of life that God calls for maturity is the kind of life that you see modeled before him and you, that you also now model in your relationship with your kids, is that self-revealing, as you as a father become vulnerable, you open your heart, and as you open your heart and you sacrificially love them and you care for them, you're not trying to control and manipulate them. That's what happens for most of us. Oh, we've got to control their behavior because I don't like what they're doing. I'm losing face, that kind of stuff. It's not about that. It's about that self-revealing, self-sacrificing kind of love. That's what leads to intimacy. And out of that intimacy comes the works of God that changes lives and so he says to him guys remember who i am few of you saw really who i am he says to them, the son of man is going to be delivered in the hands of man and they will kill him and on the third day he'll be raised to life and the disciples were filled with grief and all this is a process of giving insight to the fact that the way we live with god is in this way where we see his heart as a father modeling through his son how we're to model and live our lives with others. What I really love is the fact that we're seeing some of that stuff happen. And I asked Brian uh, Dejewski to come share a little bit about what God's doing in the Maple Hill ministry. Some of you are aware of, and I'll ask Brian to come and explain it and share a little more fully um, how God is is using this idea of, of just mentoring and modeling um, in the lives of that, that community. Good morning. We're uh, just about done, but I wanted to share with you this story um, because it really does take what Kevin's talking about, making uh, the indescribable, intangible God that we sing about um, and we sung about this morning in the song Indescribable, and taking that and making it very practical, very real, and very tangible to people so that really lives are changed. That's what we're talking about. Well, two weeks ago, the road restrictions were taken off in the city of Corcoran. And what that meant for us is that after all of this talking and describing for a number of years, and especially this past year, this concept of going into the community at Maple Hill uh, through Maple Hill Ministries that we could actually bring in a truck and drop off what's called a mobile mini, which is essentially it's a shipping container with windows and a door. And uh, we're using that as a mini community center. Now, that in and of itself is a good thing. But what I wanted to share with you is what that led to. So, again, we've been talking about this for some time. Well, what happened when we actually brought that on site? So now we, the truck pulls up and the, uh, this huge unit is being shipped, is kind of being slid off the truck. And we see people coming out of their homes and running up to this, this unit with video cameras and talking to their neighbors and bringing these kids out because this is exciting. Something is actually happening. There's an enthusiasm that's a part of this. That generated the, um, the actual owner of the park getting four picnic tables, getting paver stones to put out in front of this mobile mini, and then having um, people step up and say, I want to be a part of this from within the park, saying I want to be a street liaison and an interface between myself and the church and all of these community people. And so um, we had weekly dinners. We had a weekly dinner there last week, our first, and there was about 50 people there. And it was not great weather, and yet there were all these people excited about what's going on. So there's a great deal of enthusiasm. It also allows the opportunity for hope. So Jill met with a bunch of teachers, and uh, those teachers um, are from Rockford School District, where most of the kids from Maple Hill attend. And so they met with these teachers, eight of them, and said, how can you be engaged? They were excited about getting engaged. They wanted to sew into the lives of these kids over the summer. And so they, they met, they talked about all these ideas of things that can be done, and then Jill left that meeting and drove back to Maple Hill. She had some things to drop off. Now, when Jill drives through Maple Hill these days, as soon as the van goes drives into the, the park, 
kids start running to it, which is great. Um, but the kids ran up to it, and Jill said, hey, you know, I just met with a bunch of your teachers. And they said, okay, uh, why were you meeting with my teacher? Uh, but she said, you know, they want to be a part of what's happening here, and they want to be a part of your life. And so they asked, well, what teachers? And so they started naming names, and the teachers were named, and they said, I know her. Do you think she's actually going to come here and be in this park in, in near my house? That was a tangible expression of love that these kids offered. And then there's going to off, these teachers are going to offer ESL classes on Tuesday nights. They're going to offer Bible studies with people within the park. So there's a bunch of enthusiasm and a bunch of hope. Now, the third thing I wanted to mention is the opportunities that we're seeing. And so the last, and I'm going to describe this, is uh, based on a story that happened last, last year in Adventure Club. The, uh, the Adventure Club program has a bunch of students that you know um, come down from Maple Hill. We have about 25 or 30 of them. And I was in a classroom, about 15 boys, and uh, in this classroom, um, it was kindergarten and first graders. And so um, when we sat around, and there were two other leaders in the room, um, I sat down, and there was a, a circle on the circle carpet of about 15 kids. Well, there's probably about eight kids because there was a bunch of other ones running around. And so they were supposed to be on the circle carpet right here in front of me. And so we were trying to get the kids to listen. And uh, Kevin was talking earlier about how we have different approaches to do that. And I can be pretty strict and, and uh, I can be yeah, not so fun at times. And so I decided instead of doing, come on, sit down, come over here. We need to be learning about God's love for crying out loud. You know, get up here. Instead, I, I asked one of the boys to come up over next to me. And I took my hand and I put it on his shoulder. And immediately he settled down. And all the other kids in that circle began to look over at me with a desire, an earnest desire in their eyes. And as I began to speak and talk, this, this kid that, was, uh, that I was talking to and that I had my hand on began to kind of lean into me and, and rest into me. And then he actually moved around in front of me and jumped up onto my knee. Now, remember, I'm in Venture Club with my own son, and so immediately my own son perks up and says, wait a minute, he's mine, and he runs up and he jumps on my other knee, and then John, I'm calling him John, his brother jumps up and he jumps into the, so now I've got two or three kids in my lap, and all the other kids are staring at me with a desire, especially because I'm a man. And so when we speak about this on Father's Day, I want to encourage you there are opportunities like this to be engaged, to build relationship, to make that tangible, intangible God sometimes that seems so far away that we can conceive of, but we have a hard time feeling and seeing and grasping. Well, we are what make that invisible God visible. And so that's how we, we can do it. So we have the opportunity with Maple Hill um, because we've partnered with Kinship to uh, expand on that mentoring opportunity. And so, again, as Kevin was talking about mentoring, um, we, we, we want you to partner with us to be mentors. We especially need male mentors, but we also need female mentors. We have about a dozen so far who have signed up um, to be mentors from this church, and we need a bunch more. Uh, and so uh, that's what I want to encourage you about. You know, there are, there are some um, kids, and some of you have kids that are growing, so you may be in a place where you go, you know what, could God use me to use my heart like a father to show intent of what could be to help model that by just doing like what Brian did, so they they sense the the love of a father, knowing that you're they're going to go home to a battle and it's all a battle, and you're able then to actually, um, by your faith, move things that 
may seem immovable in a community that has just lots of heartache and single parents and, and eventually begin to see what God can do through your sacrificial, self-revealing love. That's ways that God is calling us to mentor. In a few moments, we're going to, and you leave, you know, we kind of figured out what should we do this year. We decided to give out M&Ms, men and mentoring. So as you go out the door, you'll get some M&Ms. But there's lots of ways to do that, men and women. There's Freedom House over here with Teen Challenge. We mentor there. There are all kinds of things. And I just want to challenge you um, to think about that um, in the future. And I also want to challenge you dads in the role that you have right now. Don't miss that opportunity. We're going to stand together and sing this song, Jesus Loves Me. And we, um, it says, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Some of you have sung that as little kids, and you'll remember this song as a little kid, and you may have sung it because the Bible or someone's told you. You've probably heard this a billion times, but I'm going to ask you as you sing this to think about the fact that um, maybe you've never experienced God's love. Maybe you can go back and go, I remember just this last week I felt this sense since... Where you, where you experience God's love. It's when you move from the head of being told to begin to move to the place where you've been touched that, that God begins to change your heart. So I'm going to ask you to kind of just for a moment here pray with me. Father, may we not just sing this song um, because the Bible tells us. May we sing this song because our heart has felt it. And we live in the reality that you have both told us and we have both experienced it that we might share this with others as well in jesus name i pray amen